right, uh, it's 11 o'clock, why don't we get going? Uh, on behalf of the Cato Institute, I'd like to welcome everybody to the event today, uh, which is being put on by the uh, Center for Monetary and uh, Financial Alternatives. And uh, special thanks to uh, Thaya Brooke-Knight, who um, organized all this. So thank you uh, very much. Um, my name is Ike Brandon. I'm a visiting fellow here, and I'll be the moderator today. We have a, uh, a stellar panel of uh, speakers who are experts in this area. And uh, we are going to just have a quick uh, uh, introduction of each of them, and then we will uh, get going. Um, first of all, uh, Susan Gates. Susan is the author of the riveting bestseller, as good seller as you can get for a financial markets book, uh, The Days of Slaughter, about her time at um, uh, Freddie Mac and what she thinks about the current situation and what led to it and how we can get out of it. Um, she is a, uh, the president of the uh, Wharton Policy Group, and she's a professor affiliated with uh, uh, Virginia Tech. Uh, besides her almost 20 years at uh, Freddie Mac, she began as a uh, budget analyst at OMB, which really is the hatching ground for so many uh, wonderful careers in, uh, in Washington, D.C. They, they take no dummies at OMB. Um, uh, next to her is uh, somebody all of us probably know, John Allison, former uh, president of the Cato Institute. Uh, and before that, 20 years, he was president of BB&T, one of the biggest uh, banks in uh, the United States. Uh, and in the world for that part. Right now, he is a uh, senior uh, scholar in residence, uh, executive at residence at uh, Wake Forest. Um, next to him is uh, my friend Landon uh, Parsons. He's a senior advisor at Molus and Company. Uh, and for the last 25 years, he's been very active in this, uh, in this industry. Before that, he was at uh, Goldman Sachs, Citicorp, Credit Lyonnais, and um, uh, the most uh, relevant uh, fact, I think, is that uh, 40 years ago, Landon's junior high beat my junior high to advance to the state basketball championship in uh, the state of Illinois. <laughs> so, um, and finally, to his, uh, to his left is uh, Chris Whalen. So uh, Chris uh, was the founder and is back uh, writing and editing at the Institutional Risk uh, Analyst, uh, which is fantastic uh, uh, website if you're really interested in uh, what's going on in financial markets, more from a kind of a regulatory uh, perspective. Uh, Chris is amazingly prolific, uh, and he's been he's been writing, he, he writes more than most other people, even though he's had this career as an investment banker going on uh, 30 years or so. Um, and he still is an, he still is an uh, investment banker, right? Uh, you're, I think your uh, company is called... Um, Whaling Global Advisors. Whaling Global Advisors. I knew it had your name in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> and uh, unrelated to this, he also has a, uh, his own book coming out. It just came out, uh, the, the Ford, uh, on, on, uh, on uh, Henry Ford and the Ford family. So um, uh, looking forward to hearing about that uh, at another venue at another time. So um, I think all of us who are here probably know the problems that we've, we've had with the... Uh, my microphone. <laughs> um, in uh, just to give you, I think some sense to the enormity of the problem in the housing market. Um, in uh, uh, 2016, uh, new housing starts were uh, uh, precisely 60 percent of what they had been in the uh, decade before the uh, the Great uh, Recession. And in fact, you have to go all the way back to um, 1966 to find a non-recession year where housing starts were as low 
as they were in 2016. And remember, 2016 was the, uh, the biggest year in the uh, post-recession uh, financial crisis. So that's bouncing back from a years and years of, of, of subpar uh, housing investment. And the question is, what exactly is going on? Well, we know that there's a lot of different things that are going on in the, uh, in the housing market that have put a kibosh on, uh, on new housing. So for instance, um, uh, the, you know, we've, we've seen studies before, some of which have been published by uh, Cato, showing that the, the regulatory burdens have increased the cost of building a new house, whether it's a single family home or a, uh, a multi-unit uh, development, by about 30% in the last eight years. Um, when you have something like that, people would much rather buy a uh, used house. Um, what else is going on? You're seeing the, uh, the 20-somethings and 30-somethings are delaying the age at which they both get married and then they uh, move to the suburbs to have kids. In fact, there's some question about whether this trend is actually gonna happen. And so housing uh, developers have to figure out exactly how do you cater to this new and, uh, and growing cohort. In fact, uh, Chris Whalen's uh, blog post today at the Institutional Risk Analyst uh, talks a little bit about this. But besides these two things, what, what, what's going on is just getting a mortgage is costlier and it's more difficult to do so than at any other time. Um, and, you know, the, the situations can be, uh, as, as I wrote in my uh, Cato blog post today, uh, can be uh, humorous if they, if they don't happen to you. So, uh, you know, my, my, my family and I are trying to move to a, a bigger place and uh, trying to get a conforming mortgage has been quite difficult for me, even if I want to put 50% of the purchase price down, simply because uh, the slight chance that something that has to do with my mortgage might get kicked back from... Uh, from the GSEs back to, uh, to the lender, scares people so much they don't want to touch it. So we have all kinds of examples and all kinds of data that's showing that something's not working in the mortgage market all that well. And so it comes back to, I think, the question that at hand is, how much of this has to do with the GSEs and, uh, and how much has to do with other things? And so I think that's the first question we're posing uh, to, uh, to the panelists uh, right now. So uh, let me start off with, um, Susan, since uh, she uh, uh, has this fantastic new book out. And Susan, first of all, let me just ask you, what, uh, what compelled you to, uh, to, uh, to write this book after being in the belly of the beast for so long? <laughs> uh, great question. And it's just wonderful to be here today. And I thank Cato and Thea and others. Um, and I'm really impressed to be in the um, Hayek, Hayek uh, Auditorium. I really appreciate that. Um, what made me write the book? Um, just by way of background, I worked in Freddie Mac from 1990 till 2009 uh, in various, mostly as an employee. Sometimes I was part-time, sometimes I was a consultant, raising a family at the same time. Came as an economist uh, very quickly. It was clear I knew uh, was better with words than with numbers. And I began to search for where I could play a role in this vast company. I had come from the government. I was trained in public policy, and it was a rather um, interesting step to go from OMB with our dour austerity and look down on places like Freddie Mac, which soon became my home. Um, I eventually uh, had many jobs at the company. Um, I worked on both of the sides of the company, many companies of different cultures, but I, I spent time working for the chief credit officer, David Andraconis, who became famous years later for opposing um, 
the kind of um, withering state of our underwriting standards. I also worked for the top lobbyist, another man who became famous, but for <laughs> less illustrious reasons. Um, in between, I uh, worked on reputation risk. I wrote numerous documents. And eventually, uh, as even financial services companies need good writers, I ended up writing the public statements for um, our CEOs, our acting CEOs, our interim CEOs that would go to Congress and became part of the public record. I became a vice president in 2004 of public policy. Uh, we worked a lot on GSE reform legislation, trying to triangulate the various interests within the firm. Uh, we were sort of in an existential crisis, as I write in the book, uh, as this amalgamation of public servants and commitment to a vaguely defined housing mission and a growing contingent of traders and securities traders who were coming from in from Wall Street had a very different view on the mission of the company. And so writing our unified statements became um, not creative writing, but definitely required a deft hand. <clears throat> in 2009, um, well, 2008, as you all know, the company was taken over by the government in early September. We were deemed insolvent by our, regular, our newly named regulator at the time, FHFA, Federal Housing Finance Agency, and um, both companies, Freddie and Fannie, were placed into conservatorship, which is just a hair above uh, receivership, and it meant that the new regulator was now also conservator of assets that were essentially now yours, the public's assets, because the government had taken a near 80% stake in each company. And so that was 2008. I think we're in 2017. And what I just told you is pretty much where we are today. The company remains uh, owned by the, the public. Uh, the companies um, uh, are basically run by their management. There are boards, but the regulator plays an inordinate role um, in, because they are also conservator, which means they're protecting the public's assets. So you can see that there would be tensions there between how to run a company and how to protect the assets which belong to the people. All the while, we're all treading water, waiting for Congress, the new Treasury Department, et cetera, to begin to make those very difficult choices about what to do with these two companies. When I left, um, I um, obviously, when we were taken over by the conservator, um, there was no more writing, no more speaking, no more saying anything from the inside of the firm, from the belly of the beast. And so I was essentially, um, didn't have anything to do. When our um, acting chief financial officer <coughs> took his life, in April of 20, uh, 2009, I thought that was a good time to go. I would say that um, many of us were quite devastated by the turn of events, disillusioned in the state of affairs, and then, of course, suffered the great loss of a great man at the company. So when a writer leaves a company you, um, and a policy person, you begin to watch what's going on. Now, from the outside looking in, I watched numerous congressional debates, which were essentially steamy arguments uh, between our political parties, um, furious rants and raves. Um, I read a lot of reports and books started to come out. And I noticed that many of the first generation of financial crisis books really didn't deal with Freddie and Fannie very much at all. Um, second generation started to come out, and you'd see a chapter here and there, mostly about Fannie Mae. In the meantime, we could see public information starting to come out about what had happened, and the SEC got involved, and um, Many, many uh, inside documents are now available to all of us on congressional websites. So the story began to be a public story. 
But I felt at some point that, um, that as a writer, I had a public responsibility, as I had always seen my job in writing for the CEOs and being the public ghost voice uh, for the company, is that what I felt was lacking was yet another insight, not the total set of facts or truth, but what I saw from my perspective as a 19-year employee. Um, just coming in wide-eyed, good government being my, my thing at OMB, and, and trying to begin to understand the ways of this part shareholder-driven company and very much political government company, and how that unique combination eventually, uh, I think, contributes very much to our undoing. And so I felt the need to write. It was also cathartic. I uh, hadn't done much in a while. And I also felt it was important to write in the first person because, um, and to write as an employee. Was that scary? Absolutely. And um, it took many years of sorting through things and um, putting things in perspective, trying to look at data and reports and other people's views and trying to come up with, I felt, a compelling narrative that wouldn't just be something that finance policy types might read, but that could speak to the broader um, public about everything from what's this thing called the American dream? Why are we so attached to that? And then what are the federal policies and proclivities that actually keep it running and rolling as well as lead to its distortions and dysfunction? How do banks work? How do the GSEs work? What is a GSE? What are those housing goals that I used to hear about a lot? What was the nature of the accounting scandal in 2003, quickly followed by a political scandal with the Federal Election Commission, where Freddie Mac paid the largest fine to date for uh, having fingers in places they should not? I wanted to take the storylines that many people who had been probably reading newspapers for years ago, oh, I remember that. How does that connect? So I wanted to take public, public events and string them together with a personal story, like pearls on a necklace, to make sense. It's a sense-making book. So um, what happened as I'm writing is events kept unfolding, and I felt that um, I, now I wasn't just telling a story about the past, but I was also now being able to say, this is what happened in 1995. This is what happened in 2003. Fast forward, where are we today? And lo and behold, many things have not changed. Um, our housing policies still rambling, around, uh, rambling along, encouraging um, heavy debt, encouraging um, the purchase of, of homes, maybe uh, to a level that is beyond what, what really should be the right level for this nation. The investment in housing uh, via the subsidies, the mortgage interest structure, <coughs> and of course the implicit and now explicit subsidies to Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, when we also already have FHA and Ginnie Mae on budget, as well as the veterans program. So all of that is, is legacy, but it's also our present reality. And I wanted to bring a voice to uh, the current debate, which has stymied for many years now in Congress. Uh, Mel Watt, the current FHFA uh, conservator, uh, twice now, just a few, like a month ago, um, in front of was it the Senate, I think, um, no, in the House, was saying again, this conservatorship is quite long in tooth. It is getting unstable. This is not a good thing to be um, having these companies just sitting in limbo and yet supporting and so critical to the U.S. housing market. Um, it's a little Cinderella fact that at midnight of this year, 2017, by um, Treasury design in the takeover agreements, that the companies will have zero capital. Zero. 
Um, they've not been able to build capital, and um, their profits have been flowing to the government since 2012. Of course, policymakers are very loath to unleash and give capital back because we haven't decided what to do. So there we sat. Um, I wanted to bring um, greater public understanding. I wanted to be a burr and a spur to um, push on reform, hence this scary subtitle, Why It Could Happen Again. My simple reason is everything that I lived through is still here. It has nothing to do with current management. In fact, the companies are quite flush with cash at the moment. We can all be thankful for that. It's nothing to do with their current boards of directors. It's just that the landscape, the ground on which these firms are is as shaky as it was before. And now it's all on taxpayer shoulders. Long answer, short question. But that's why I wrote the book. That was great. Um, so, you know, I, 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 before I just, this is an aside, I mentioned how valuable it is for a young person to go to, to OMB. I also think if you're thinking about studying economics, coming from a humanities perspective is such a great thing because you can write. And I think that's what hinders so many economists who want to move up in their job is they can't write. It's almost unfair to have people like you going in. Um, hey, so one question. When you, so you left in 2009 and then this book just came out uh, a few months ago. Uh, so what surprising things did you learn in those years you were researching the book that you didn't know when you were at Freddie Mac? Well, of course, when you're in, um, in the middle of a bad movie, <laughs> you really don't know how it's going to end. And you don't know what um, policies or things you thought were great while the movie was running. Actually, when we see how it all unraveled, we're not so great. And I think those very saddening and surprising statistics for me were um, uh, just the, uh, as we say, the, the, the chickens came home to roost. And to see how many mortgages that were made under um, well-intentioned but likely naive or, or um, mixed motive reasons, such as loans to support and expanding uh, to e- help equalize the, the large difference between minority homeownership rates and white homeownership rates. And this had been a policy prescription in the early 2000s, and our company had, helped, had gotten on the bandwagon for that. And we also had been pilloried for many years for not doing more to expand affordable housing in that area. And then to, to read Articles after articles, see the data coming out. And I remember Washington Post just a few years ago about the um, devastating loss to communities of color of all these loans that were supposed to help them and were supposed to um, help equalize the homeownership rate. It's now more skewed than ever. Um, Wealth has been lost. Again, not for everyone, but in select communities. um, One particular one was in DeKalb County in Georgia, I think the, the Washington Post had just reported on that. Instead of a chapter in my book on Georgia, I was very um, focused on how loans uh, to families uh, supporting homes that were very similar in different counties, but they were racially um, comprised different counties, and how much slower to respond and come back have been these communities of color. That grieved me because I know... Um, how um, unintended policies had contributed to that. And so that was, was sort of a sad um, revelation to see those data come out. Not surprising, though. Mm-hmm. Um, so last question. You, you kind of get a little, uh, in the book, you say, you, you could see uh, Freddie Mac uh, cl- collapse again, what, which I thought was kind of provocative. What, <laughs> what, what, what might bring this such an event on? <laughs> Well, as I said, there's nothing. I, I'm really not talking at all. I don't mean mention anybody at the firm uh, past 2009. Um, I, I'm just saying that uh, I'm trying to be provocative, and I'm trying to say that 
the companies in most of the public's estimation, they're fine, right? They're fine, making money. I think just at 10 a.m., FHFA put out the new uh, um, annual report for the two entities. So um, there's lots of good numbers in there. But um, it's, it's a situation that even the regulator is warning about, that it is um, long in tooth, it is unstable if we do not move quickly to reform. And uh, reform is, is, the, is the question of the hour. Um, moral hazard, so I think that the balance sheets are weak of the firm, to be specific. Um, as the regulator has said, that any bump in quarterly earnings that could be associated with volatilities normally would be absorbed by shareholder capital, and there isn't much of that there um, because that's flowing to the government. Is it easy to pick up the phone and call and say, we, we need more cash? It certainly could be played in. There is extra money available that was allocated, but still, it, it can create, it's not something that I think bodes well and is a good thing, and who knows what other, um, it's just a place of instability that could lead to unintended consequences. Um, our views on homeownership and housing have all pretty much been the same. I think that a number of the reform measures indicate the housing industry pretty much wants to keep things the way it is. So the uh, little moniker of recap and release, oh, let's, let's done with these things, just patch them up, a few more Band-Aids, and load them up with capital and send them out again. That's a, that's a strong current. When policy inertia sets in, people are just tired. So there's a tendency there. I also think the system itself is full of moral hazard. And so the same pressures that came to bear on the GSEs to um, take their strong underwriting standards, which are strong today, which is why it's harder to get a loan, um, uh, that to begin to put pressure on that once again. Because a, a, a strong and safe system often uh, is a system that is not as accessible or open to more and more Americans. So those tensions and pressures will be there, and I'm not sure Congress is in a position of alignment or consensus on those very important questions. Moral hazard still exists in the system because of um, the lack of, um, of um, what I would call skin in the game, the uh, QRM regulation in Dodd-Frank. And certainly Dodd-Frank has many, 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 many regulations, but this one I thought was important. And I would note that both Sheila Bear and Barney Frank were aligned um, and had great chagrin when this was um, watered down. And basically, any mortgage now that flows into a GSC security uh, does not have that backing of capital that was envisioned in Dodd-Frank to give either a banker's stake in the ground, and I'll be interested in your view from BAB&T, or the homeowner. So the idea is if you have a strong down payment, that, that someone's got um, you know, skin in the game, not just this entity that right now is totally explicitly backed by the government. We want everyone along the process to have chips in the game so that we all share together in the collective risk. Um, and so, anyway, that's why I think um, things could happen again because of policy inertia. We're tired. There's pressures just to put them back on the street. Um, and we haven't really solved the deeper problems of, of moral hazard and skin in the game. Thanks. Hey, John, I'm going to turn to you for a minute. So let's say you're, you're made dictator for a day. How are you going to fix the, the GSE system? Well, uh, the answer is pretty easy in, in my case. <laughs> yeah, I would uh, announce that one year from now they're, they're out of business, and uh, I would let them liquidate their portfolios and liquidate the, the risk. But let me put a little context on that, because you know, that's an out-of-context <laughs> comment. Um, I have a unique experience of being in the mortgage business for 45 years, 
uh, one way or the other through BB&T and my activities. And I've seen the evolution of the business. And I want to, I think these are important um, general background questions. What we know from economic research over and over again is government subsidies distort markets and reduce the standard of living. We know that in everything that the government has subsidized. Um, the government uh, subsidies to housing have been distorting markets, and Freddie and Fannie are basically exist because of government subsidies. Um, and that's had consequences to it. Housing, interestingly enough, although I have a house and I like having a house, is a particularly economically destructive thing to subsidize because housing is consumption. People don't think of housing as consumption. They think of it as an investment. But you consume a house just like you do an automobile or refrigerator. They wear out, and anybody that's owned a house, you spend a lot of money maintaining your house. And you, and you definitely don't want to subsidize consumption in a society that's leveraged the way the, the U.S. is. You want to, if you want to subsidize anything, you want to subsidize investment. In addition, Freddie and Fannie today, it particularly makes no sense to subsidize Freddie and Fannie because they're basically supporting the middle income and high income housing market. And, and if you, there have been a bunch of studies on this and what they've effectively done in those markets not, uh, is encourage people to buy bigger houses. They don't enable people to buy houses, but encourage people to buy bigger houses. That's an interesting thing for the government to choose to subsidize. If you want to subsidize housing, you would subsidize, and we are subsidizing, the FHA and Jenny May that deal with first home buyers and low income people and you wouldn't subsidize middle and high income people. Secondly, the GSA, and, and to some degree this was just talking about, the GSE uh, structure is a very destructive structure. It's a government-sponsored enterprise, which means it's half fish and half fowl, and it, it, you know, what's its main duties? Um, in the preceding the financial crisis, uh, tremendous pressure from Congress on Freddie and Fannie to make mortgage loans they didn't want to make, that they were not structured to make, that they were not funding to make in the, the so-called affordable housing now subprime market. Uh, Peter uh, Wallston at uh, AEI has done a lot of research on the numbers. And when Freddie and Fannie failed, they had $2 trillion in subprime mortgages. They dominated the subprime mortgage market, not because they wanted them, but in order to get their, keep their guarantees, which they had to have from the government, on their liabilities, they had to do that. And that pressure caused them to do some very destructive things for the economy and for their own organizations. All good intentions in, uh, implied in that. But what's interesting, if you roll back before that, uh, I was on a committee of the Financial Services Roundtable looking at how big the subsidy going to housing through Freddie and Fannie Mae was. And it was $4 billion. Taxpayers were subsidizing housing. $2 billion of that was captured by the shareholders of Freddie and Fannie. <laughs> and $2 billion was going to the housing market, which is kind of innate in this crazy structure of government involvement. And if the government's involved, and I've seen a lot of these things where Freddie and Fannie are going to kind of be privatized, it'll just be a GSE again. If the government's involved, you're going to have political pressure to do subprime mortgages again, or you're going to have capture of a subsidy by the shareholders, neither one, which makes, makes any sense. Um, and then the, there, there's this issue, and I find it almost bizarre, of the necessity for Freddie and Fannie, or we won't have house finance. Uh, that's bizarre. 
If you look at capital markets today, everything gets financed. A lot riskier stuff than homes get financed. Homes are one of the least risky things to finance. They're very low risk uh, assets. They would it'd be easy to have them financed in that market. And what's interesting, you can just go back in history. When I went into the banking business in the early 1970s, Freddie and Fannie played trivial role in the house finance business. Houses were primarily financed through uh, uh, insurance companies. We had a big at BB&T mortgage origination business. We did 25-year fixed rate mortgages with 20% down, with basically zero loss ratios to insurance companies, a great asset for insurance companies. And of course, savings and loans finance houses. The savings and loan industry was broken, not because of bad loans. Uh, they actually had very low loss ratios because they had something that Freddie and Fannie missed, and this goes to the last comment, they had they knew the markets, they were local institutions, and they kept the assets, so they cared about the quality. They got broken by the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve drove the prime rate to 21%, and they had 7% fixed rate mortgages, and their CD costs went up. They weren't broken by bad, bad mortgages, and they were driven out of business. Now, here's what's ironic. Banks like BB&T, we were ready to we would love to have gotten into the home mortgage finance business. It was a great opportunity for us because we could manage the interest rate risk because we were primarily a commercial uh, business lender, and almost all of our business loans were on a uh, variable interest rate. <coughs> we could have portfolioed a large portfolio of home mortgages. But when we started doing it, and we, then we compared what was happening to Freddie and Fannie, since Freddie and Fannie were guaranteed by the federal government, they had a lower cost of capital. You cannot compete against the federal government. And they drove the whole banking industry out of portfolio and home mortgages. And then, of course, the underwriting standards deteriorated because of pressure from Congress and the fact that there was a detachment from local knowledge, which is hugely important in real estate markets, and, 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 the, and the underwriting standards, which is still going on today. Um, and of course, what's happened since the financial crisis is kind of classic government overreach. They've tightened the standards, but they haven't tightened them rationally. They've tightened them based on the paperwork. Uh, so, so under the CFB, uh, CFPB rules, you can actually write a mortgage that from a credit risk perspective is, is a, definitely a high risk subprime mortgage. But if you make a mistake on the paperwork, then, then the borrower owes you nothing. So what does that do? It shifts the focus to the paperwork. And now to close the mortgage, I, I was talking to one of our mortgage people uh, uh, last week. Uh, when I went to work for the bank, we, you can make a mortgage with three pieces of paper. And the borrower understood the mortgage. I mean, you could read it and understand the deal. You might not you know, like it or not like it, you can understand the deal. Today, it's 600 pages to close a mortgage. 600 pages to close a mortgage. And the borrower has no idea what they agreed to. And, and all of that is the CFPB tightening and focusing on the paperwork instead of the underwriting standards. But the practical implication has been to make it so much harder to get a mortgage that it's had a significant negative impact on uh, a mortgage activity. The out is easy. There's no reason for Freddie and Fannie to exist. You just say a year from now, um, they're no longer in business. They uh, liquidate their portfolio. They're, they either have the reserves or not. don't have the reserves for the, the guarantees they've made. And I'll guarantee you a private market would develop. There's no question in my mind that a private market would develop and it would be a better market. It would be a more rational market it would have a much more economic basis and activity and reduce the risk in the general economy of volatility. Because Freddie and Fannie played a huge role in creating the financial crisis 
because they were under pressure of Congress to do something that made no economic sense that no private lender would have, would have done in terms of portfolio and their own mortgages. So getting rid of Freddie and Fannie be, would be really good for the economy uh, in the long term. Uh, so, John, let's say you, you get your wish. The private market takes over mortgage-backed securities. Can that happen and with, without an implicit guarantee the federal government is still developing? Like, are there something we can do to make sure that, that if these guys go, go out, we don't have a financial collapse and the government's going to step in and the market just assumes as much? Well... It, it doesn't need to happen. I mean, I, I, you know, again, when I started the business, there wasn't an implicit guarantee, and it worked fine, and it doesn't need to be there. Uh, now, whether the government would do it uh, or not, I think it would actually significantly reduce the risk in the banking business because if banks had properly underwritten home mortgages, a very low-risk business, you'd have less risk of, of banking failure instead of more. So I think it actually would, would reduce the risk in the, in the industry. Now... Will the government bail out financial institutions again? It's not supposed to. <laughs> I hope it wouldn't, but I don't know. But uh, I don't. They wouldn't be getting in trouble because of a housing bubble. Okay. All right, Landon. Let me uh, let, let me turn to you. So, um, uh, your company just put out a, uh, a blueprint for restoring safety and, and soundness to the GSE. So, congratulations. Great publication. Yeah. Um, so, my first question. Tell us a little bit about it. But uh, I think I'm also curious. Why did you guys? I, for years you've been working on this. Why, is this, why did you decide, I assume, because you've been in this industry for years, so why did you guys decide now is the time to put something out? <clears throat> well, basically, I think Ms. Gates pointed out the problem, and that is, um, on, as of December 1st of this year, uh, Fannie and Freddie, as a combined entity, has zero capital. That's really amazing when you stop and think that they have guarantee, which is essentially insurance books that exceed $4.4 billion worth of policies they've written, but they have zero capital. The only thing that supports them is a $260 billion, basically, backup line from the government, which is their sole claims-paying resources, which is a term that sometimes you use uh, when you're discussing uh, insurance companies. So that's, that is just dangerous. Um, and one of the things that we think about and I've thought about is that the U.S. taxpayer is not capital. The U.S. taxpayer needs to be protected by capital. And so running these entities with zero capital just makes no sense to me at all. One thing I need to point out, and I should, point, I should have pointed it out by now, um, is I am a financial advisor, an investment banker. Um, I do have clients with skin in the game. Uh, I advise the uh, non-litigating uh, preferred shareholders of both uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So we've done a lot of thinking about the housing finance system. We've done a lot of thinking about the existing capital structures of the company. When Treasury uh, Secretary Mnuchin came in, he created a lot of uh, press very quickly um, by noting that he thought the amount of government intervention in the housing market was too much. And he also stated that he wanted to see ways that uh, the government could pull back from basic, its basic ownership of these two entities. So what's interesting is we kind of have this juxtaposition, which 
both speakers before me has, has pointed out, is that government is too involved in housing, but at the same time, there are certain social goods that people want to try to support through housing policy. And they created those social goods by working through um, uh, uh, two companies that basically, if you look back at their business models now, were flawed. <clears throat> so we came out, we felt the timing for our blueprint was very good. And the reason we call it a blueprint as opposed to a plan is probably in the, since the beginning of the year, there's been at least four or five major plans produced. Um, that have all addressed in one way or another uh, GSE reform and sometimes in broader context housing reform. And I make that distinction very clearly because that's um, uh, the distinction that uh, Director Watt makes. Uh, in this particular context, what you've seen is each of these four to five plans that have been written have been written by uh, advocacy of typically special interest groups. And um, they have uh, put forth concepts that oftentimes require significant replumbing and infrastructure be built to support the housing finance market. Um, going from anything from new aggregators to new aggregating securitization vehicles to um, creating multiple companies where there are two today, all with the idea of creating a new policy perspective, and all of these policy perspectives cannot be effectuated unless they go through Congress. The problem is, is as of the end of this year, which is six months from now, these companies have no capital. And it is not feasible for a political solution to completely satisfy that issue. <clears throat> so what we've done in our blueprint is we've attempted to add math to the equation. <laughs> and, and Ike, as a fellow economist who uh, uh, probably spent way too much time with using math in graduate school than he'd like to admit, um, math is the key. Math is the structure as to which you can understand things. And all of the policy papers that have been written to date have been basically policy papers written generally by political scientists who don't really do math, um, former bureaucrats, and people who do not really understand the basic underpinnings of corporate finance. So what we attempted to do in our paper is to create a blueprint where you can <coughs> apply basic corporate finance mathematical skills a la AIG, and the government's work that it did through relaunching AIG into the marketplace to understand how we can effectuate this. And our plan basically is built upon uh, creating a bank-like capital structure. And we freely admit that that bank-like capital structure needs to be amended for the peculiarities of a single-purpose mortgage insurer. But we introduce a bank-style capital structure. We introduce concepts of risk-weighted assets and concepts of tier one, tier two capital. We build in the continued uh, need for government to use credit risk transfer 
which is a pro-cyclical tool of credit transfer, but it does have its purposes. Um, and as a result of that, we basically come up with a capital structure. Once you go through all the math, that says that you need three and a quarter to three and a half percent of today's assets to capitalize Fannie and Freddie in such a way that they would meet the basic tier one capital guidelines that you would see at most banks. That number is roughly $180 billion. In comparison, if you compare that to the uh, rules that were in place before the conservatorship, Fannie and Freddie would be required to have $43 billion today. So we are significantly suggesting that we change the paradigm. We need to recognize that the investment portfolios, which had been $1.5 trillion before the crisis, um, was the predominant reason for the failure of these companies. Uh, most plans today, including ours, prescribe no more investment portfolios. And with 300 and uh, we, we propose 300 to 330 billion dollars of total claims paying resources. And we do that by putting 180 billion dollars of private capital first. And then we reduce what is basically today this 260 billion dollar backup line. We've reduced that to $150 billion. And all of a sudden, you've gone from $260 billion of claims paying resources, which is solely dependent upon the government, to over $300 to $330 billion of, of claims paying resources that is backed by first loss, 3.5% private capital. We show that this can be totally effectuated within four years using common. Uh, methods that are used in most distressed companies and recapitalization of companies. And it's, it's, we put it forward now to answer your question very succinctly after waiting, you know, spending five minutes explaining this. Um, the time is right because we're out of capital. And Secretary Mnuchin has said he wants to do it and says he wants to do it in the second half of this year. And so that's why we put the blueprint out now. Uh, just a quick follow-up. What kind of guarantee does your plan have? <clears throat> Well, our plan uses a, um, a catastrophic guarantee. And by catastrophic, what we mean is one of the reasons that we think, one of the reasons we put the, wrote the plan we did in the way we wrote it is it's important that we do something to protect the taxpayer now, and it's important that we put some sort of capital in place now. Um, any kind of change in the guarantee that has been suggested by other commentators, such as a full unlimited wrap on mortgage-backed securities, requires congressional action. There's a role for Congress here. Um, there's a role, as Ms. Gates pointed out, to um, solidify and codify the disparate portions of our housing finance policy, which is you know, effectuated through Fannie or Freddie, the FHA, the VA, the Rural Housing Service at the Department of Agriculture. There needs to be someone step back and say, how do all these pieces work? But in the meantime, we have to build capital. So in our plan, we want to be able to effectuate something where the government can start building capital now. And so we suggest that there be an explicitly defined catastrophic guarantee at at $150 billion, or at the amount that the safety and soundness regulator thinks is the appropriate amount to support the TBA market. 
Um, and we see that as being important to support the ability for small institutions and small banks and community lenders to continue to forward hedge their book. Contrast that to the recent calls for full wrap of the MBS securities. Um, one of the biggest things that I learned from the financial crisis as an individual um, and particularly at being involved in creating a lot of very complicated finance structures over the last 30 years, um, is that if it's not simple enough that you can explain it to your father-in-law over a cocktail, you probably shouldn't do it. And in that respect, the unintended consequences of putting into place a full mortgage-backed guarantee are enormous. First, it miscues um, pricing in the market. There is a 20 basis point spread between Fannie and Freddie paper and Ginny paper. That 20 basis point spread isn't there for credit risk. The predominant reason that that 20 basis point spread exists there, which translates into $2 of value for each $100 of bonds. The reason that exists there is because Ginny's have a scarcity value. They have a scarcity value because they have zero risk-based weighting, whereas Fannie and Freddie's have 20% risk-based rating under Basel III. They also, uh, uh, Ginny's have more favorable um, treatment in what's called the HQLA, which is how banks calculate their um, leverage coverage ratios. So the basic point is, is if you made Fannie's, Freddie's, Perry Passu, or similar to Ginny's, then Ginny's would lose their scarcity value. If Ginny's lose their scarcity value, those bonds will cheapen. As a result, how, as a result of those bonds cheapening, that means something has to give someplace else in the equation, because in math, everything has to balance at the end of the day, and that turns into higher mortgage rates. So the self-serving concept of wrapping all Fannie and Freddie MBS with a full implicit guarantee would have the unintended secondary order effect of making mortgage rates for FHA borrowers, VA borrowers, and, and rural housing service, Department of Agriculture borrowers, go up. And that's the last thing you want from a policy perspective is to transfer for the benefit of certain investors' risk-weighting characterizations, higher mortgage rates for the most vulnerable parts of our society. So it's unnecessary. The market today is a defined, limited guarantee at $260 billion of claims-paying resources. We suggest that can be cut back to $150 billion and in our plan would give you total claims paying resources of 330 billion. And so the market should, and the TBA market should, looking forward, be more than able to support that change in capital. And if not, we put in the safety valve that the safety and soundness regulator changes it, so that does. Thanks. <clears throat> and uh, you know, this is a point I've, that you made that, that John made and I've made before. I mean, if you look at the system, our, our, our housing finance system writ large, it really is amazing how much it distorts things in favor of the wealthy and against the low-income people who are the ones who really need the help. So, uh, so Chris, um, so since we're in the talk show format, th th this harkens to uh, 
probably no one's old enough to remember this, but remember uh, when David Letterman was the king on NBC in the early 1980s, he was still close friends with Jay Leno, and Jay Leno would come on once a month, and instead of having a back and forth, uh, Letterman would just say, Jay, what's your beef? So, Chris, I've known you for almost that long. What's your beef? Tell, tell us what's bothering you about the home market. Well, uh, thank you, by the way, for uh, the invitation. I kind of represent um, the non-Washington component. Uh, I ran the financial institutions group at Kroll Bond Rating Agency for three years before I decided I wanted to go back to being an investment banker. Um, and what we wrote at Kroll, it's on their website, which I would urge you to take a look at some of the papers, was that the GSEs don't need any capital. Um, you know, the reason that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have AAA ratings from Moody's, S&P, and the rest of them is because of either the implicit or explicit support of the United States. Um, the, the amount of private capital that might or might not be available to support these operations, and let's be clear, Fannie and Freddie are banks. You know, your characterization is exactly right, Landon. It, it, they were created as, you know, Fannie Mae was basically an industry-owned thrift when it was created to buy loans and, and make a secondary market for loans back in the 1930s. But today, after the ERSAT's privatization by Lyndon Johnson, which was a fraud, let's be fair, uh, they wanted to get these agencies off of the budget. I was working for Jack Kemp at the time. I think you were starting to work in Washington, too. You're a little younger than I am. Um, so there was no thought about privatizing these things. They just wanted to get them off the budget and get rid of them because in those days, debt and inflation were serious issues that worried people. Mm. And Lyndon Johnson was hiding the cost of the Vietnam War from the American people. So this was an easy way to get it done. Joe Califano helped him, our good friend Joe, you know, at, uh, at AEI, Ed Pinto has done amazing research on this. Uh, but I tell you this, you know, little story because at the end of the day, to me, uh, I think Mr. Allison is right. We don't need three GSEs. We have, in fact, we have four of them. We have the federal home loan banks, too. And I think that the solution here is not to recapitalize these things and push them back out there so they can get into this tug of war between the market and the political groups that you know, our, our author was talking about before. She's absolutely right. If you look at the way the bond market works, sure, there's a slight discount for Fannie and Freddie versus Ginny. Why? Ginny's full faith and credit of the United States. But the difference between the Ginny May market and Fannie and Freddie is that in the Ginny May market, the bank that issues the securities, that makes the loan and issues the securities, keeps the assets, and they pay the bondholders. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac pay the bondholders. All the banks that operate in that market are what we call subservicers. So to me, if you want to get rid of the problem, you could get rid of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac very easily, roll their existing liabilities over to Ginnie Mae, which is the U.S. Treasury, by the way. And then you get to a place where, thankfully, we're, we're already there because over the past few years, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac have been experimenting with what we call risk sharing. And what is that? That's a bunch of Wall Street investors doing exactly what Landon was talking about, which is taking the first loss risk on the mortgage as an investment. They put it on their books. It's actually been quite a good investment for a lot of insurance companies and others. 
Um, and then the government provides a very deep backstop. I doubt they would ever see any losses. And you still have a homogeneous market so the little community banker can hedge your interest rate risk. I'll tell you a funny story. I work in the mortgage industry a lot with servicers and lenders. And uh, in fact, I worked for a special servicer, uh, Carrington, years ago, which really specialized in distressed loans. And you know, to, to really look and understand that market, the, the reason that investors buy this paper is, you know, going back to Landon's point, because they don't want to worry about the specific credit risk on the loan. They want to be able to buy and sell these securities and not have to worry about going through each loan in a pool, which is how we used to do it years ago, Bear Stearns. You know, when Bear first put their toe in the water uh, doing mortgages, they tried to analyze each mortgage to see what would happen with it, which obviously was a really bad idea, but they <laughs> did it anyway. So the, the long story short, Ike, is that I think there is a path here which has already in large part been created by some of the work that's been done since the crisis, which is you get rid of these two entities you don't need. You have the federal home loan banks to provide liquidity support to banks, especially smaller banks. And then you end up with this government market uh, with the FHA and the VA and the USDA for those who really need the help. And you force, if you can, Congress to focus their policy wants and needs on that market. And the rest of the market, the middle class, the upper middle class, they don't need government subsidies. They need a way to fund these things. And I think having banks issue the securities, everybody always raises this bogeyman about the big banks taking over the world and hmm. you know doing bad things to community banks. No, what we really need to do is tweak the res regulations, going back to what Mr. Allison was saying, so that small community banker either keeps the loan or sells the note, say through Ginnie Mae, but they keep the servicing. And if Billy Bob gets in trouble, the banker could sit down with Billy Bob and find out what happened, fix the loan, and, and, and manage the credit risk. That to me is the biggest disconnect in the system, was feeding Wall Street with these loans, but separating the original lender from the from the homeowner. Let me ask uh, one question. It's, it's kind of a follow-up to something that, that John said. It was in your uh, the piece you published this morning. What, so what's killing the making of the servicing of these mortgages? Well, first and for, foremost, it's the CFPB and Dodd-Frank. I mean, we since 2012, when the CFPB came online, we've had the Spanish Inquisition in the mortgage industry. <laughs> they have this undefined... Uh, thing called abusive practices, and Mr. Cordray, who was the Ohio Attorney General before he came to Washington, can basically impose fines and penalties without any due process, no notice. They don't have to document their findings. They just say pay. And the Department of Justice, by the way, has done the same thing in, in going after institutions uh, for alleged errors in FHA lending. You know, Jamie Dimon very famously took J.P. Morgan out of that market. All the banks have left that market because who in their right mind, let's say you own a little community bank and your family's whole fortune is invested in that bank's capital, why would you want to put yourself in the crosshairs to have the FHA tell you that you've got to pay some enormous fine for something you didn't even do? That's Washington today. It's unfair and it's un-American. And unfortunately, because of people's anger and the whole political atmosphere around Dodd-Frank, they made it this way specifically. 
So if there's one part of that law that needs to be fixed, <laughs> we've got to rewrite that whole CFPB section and preserve what we did achieve through Dodd-Frank, which was to have a national standard for foreclosure and a national protocol for how you deal with troubled borrowers, but make it fair. Because right now, the industry is dying. Um, I would doubt that more than half of the total seller servicers in the FHA market today are making money. The average uh, in the first quarter was 10 basis points. You know what the, the long-term average profit for a lender in the FHA market was? 51 basis points. So this industry is literally dying while we're all sitting here talking about GSE reform. But I gotta tell you, deregulation for small community banks, for small mortgage banks in the FHA market, that's a very popular issue. The first politician who gets ahead of that's gonna run for president in a couple of years. <laughs> John, I think that's an invitation. <laughs> <laughs> please, um, please go right ahead, John. <laughs> All right, so I, so we have, uh, I think now's the time to uh, open it up for uh, questions. Uh, just a couple requests. Uh, before you begin your question, uh, please wait for a microphone, and we'll have a couple people coming down with the microphones. Uh, the second thing, please identify yourself. And the third thing, uh, make your question in the form of a question, not a longish statement. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, go ahead. If you have a question, uh, raise your hand. I have a little trouble seeing, so you might have to... Um, uh -oh. Okay, yeah, way in the, uh, in the back. Morning, very interesting presentation, and I resonate with the fact that it's all about the math. Uh, now, each of you have had implicit proposals that uh, seem to um, increase the leverage of the banks and, and say eventually it will... Uh, privatize if you implement these proposals. Um, do your papers or your underlying analyses say what the disruption might be while it's privatizing and what would the endpoint um, profiting be? Um, and uh, I think that we keep, while we say math is important, the entire collateralized mortgage uh, problem uh, some people say it was caused by an error in the risk coefficient matrix uh, of how they computed risk and uh, 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 in the third decimal point, and that caused the whole bubble. Yeah. Well, well just quickly, there's $10 trillion in mortgage, residential mortgage finance out there today. Uh, commercial banks support about, what, a quarter of it, John, on their balance sheet. So the rest is sold to investors. So if you make this change, what you have to figure out is how can you preserve a marketplace for funds and insurance companies and even banks who buy these securities? Banks alone, you know, if you think about two and a half trillion dollars worth of risk exposure in terms of whole loans that are in a portfolio of a bank, they then go out and invest in another God, I don't know what, a half trillion, three quarter of a trillion dollars at least in mortgage securities, probably a little more than that. More. So the rest of it's got to be sold to bond investors. That's the trick. You got to tune the system as you change it so that it's still friendly in terms of investors, I think. I made my, <clears throat> I made my comment about math earlier because, um, you know, I was drawing a juxtaposition versus the other plans that have been out to date which all in one form or another say we need to reintroduce private capital into the markets. Um, 
but they never prescribed specifically how to do that, how much that capital needs to be and what the cost of that capital would be. And so what we did in our paper using SIFI-style capital metrics is create a framework where we can now have um, an honest discussion such that if you want to encourage an appropriate type of lending or you want to discourage certain forms of subprime lending, then through assessment of what's called risk risk weight averages, which under banking is just a flat 50% under the standardized approach for mortgages, but we're suggesting that policymakers, in this case the safety and soundness regulator who would most likely be the FHFA, would establish those risk weightings that are appropriate for the companies and for not and to balance the risk between shareholders and economic and housing policy. And by implementing those risk weightings through the structure, that will tell you then what the capital level needs to be, and it will also tell you what is the amount of G fees that have to be charged to support that capital structure and be able to allow private money to come back into support of this market. In our specific plan, um, what we attempt to do is create granny stocks out of Fannie and Freddie. As I noted earlier, we've eliminated, and the market pretty much universally agrees, that the investment portfolios, which exceeded $1.5 trillion, which actually got the market into significant trouble, got these companies in significant trouble, be eliminated. And that leaves only their core guarantee function and their core plumbing aspects to supporting the securitization market. So associated with that, you've taken away the private equity investment returns that are necessary to support equity. And in our model, um, we are modeling that the return on equity, which is a measurement of math for the uh, efficiency and the um, health of the company, should be roughly 10 to 11%. And that is commensurate with a well-functioning solid, stable company um, that should be able to enjoy uh, the benefits of a granny stock investor. And in the process of doing that, we bring in non-procyclical capital, we bring in permanent capital that can be cross-collateralized against any specific vintage of risk, which CRT doesn't, and allows the companies to safely take Uh, you know, next step forward in effectuating housing policy. Now, in our plan, I made the comment earlier that we were trying to do this largely through administrative action. And and that's not us saying there's no role for Congress. We think there's an immense role for Congress here to justify and bring together what's today a very disparate housing policy. But in the process of doing that, creating a mechanism for setting G fees that creates a granny stock would unleash 
significant private capital that would be willing to come back to this space. Can I ask him a question? Uh-oh. Sure, go ahead. <laughs> but, you know, given the success of the risk-sharing program, number one, and given the amount of capital that's already out there in the insurance sector, the private mortgage insurers, why do we need two more entities? I mean, that's the real basic problem I have with your proposal is that we just don't need them. we got plenty of capital out there. Yeah, I would, I would refer you to um, an, an article that was uh, published in the Journal of Structured Finance, I believe, last quarter. It was last quarter. Uh, Mickey Shemi in the audience and myself co-wrote this article. And specifically, we take a look at credit risk transfer. And the important thing to remember about the CRT program, and I'm for CRT, I think it should be used in the capital structure of Fannie and Freddie, but I also recognize the risks of using it and account for it mathematically within the proposal. One of the biggest risks is it's pro-cyclical. I, I think one of the biggest political risks of CRT is... It's a difficult subject to explain. So when they talk about risk being transferred, they will always quote what's called the UPB or the face value of the loan. So they'll say, we transferred $1 trillion of risk this fiscal year or this quarter um, for Fannie and Freddie. The truth of the matter is what they've typically done is sold what's called a mezzanine strip, which means they typically sell something from like 2 to 3% to 5%. So they're not selling credit risk on a trillion dollars. They're selling credit risk on 2% of that, 2 to 5% of it. So to say that that um, is, in essence, a, a fungible permanent source of capital to support the companies, it's just not. But, but that's my point. You don't need the companies to do this. Uh, you do need the companies to do this because in pro-cyclical times, if you take a look at the credit spread that's being paid on CRT, it matches nearly to 100% correlation that of the single B high yield index. Mm -hmm. It is a alternative instrument for fixed income investors to purchase. And as a result of that, the primary purpose of Fannie and Freddie was to create, is to eliminate regionalization of lending and is to provide a secondary source for lending in the event of economic weakness. And if you're dependent upon all of your capital coming from a pro-cyclical instrument, then you are unable to um, effectuate a cost-effective guarantee program uh, during periods of financial crisis. Well, the, the price will change. Go ahead. I just wanted to comment. I think that uh, if you got rid of Freddie and Fannie and the government quit guaranteeing home mortgages, uh, it would be very easy to finance the mortgage business. It's a low-risk asset. It's a lot less risky than a lot of assets that are being financed today. Banks would probably double their portfolios in home mortgages. They'd reduce their other assets, maybe get some of their leveraged loans. They'd be less risky institutions. They might actually try to get some deposits. They've been running deposits off intentionally. Uh, if insurance companies couldn't get uh, government-guaranteed assets, they would buy mortgages. Uh, if pension plans, you now somebody's financing this market anyway, right? The issue is whether they got to have a government guarantee to do it or not. And it's a ridiculous argument that they got to have a government guarantee because the asset in and of itself is relatively low risk. Now, could the rates go up on home mortgages? Maybe, and that would be economic justice. If they're underpriced, then you're allocating resources to the wrong asset. 
you're, you're misallocating assets. And so whatever the mortgage rates would settle in a private market is the rates that they ought to be, and, and that would be good. By the way, two myths that justify the, the, uh, the subsidizing of, of home, homes, is very, they're very interesting to me. One of the myths is that home ownership improves behavior. You know, there's absolutely no evidence of that. Uh, in fact, it's exactly the opposite. It's a set of behavior characteristics, the savings uh, and, 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 and self-discipline that allows you to buy a home. I had, I had this argument with, with uh, uh, Barney Frank, of, of Dodd-Frank. Uh, this is before the financial crisis when some of us said, this thing's getting really bad. And I, I met with Barney Frank twice. And uh, Barney was, had a religious belief in affordable housing, i.e. subprime. I mean, it was... He wasn't interested in any conversation. <laughs> but anyway, I said, well, you know, Barney, if, if owning a home is so great, the next time somebody commits a crime, why don't we just give them a house instead of putting them in jail? <laughs> he thought I was serious. <laughs> the other myth is that home ownership's a good investment. Home ownership is a very mediocre investment. It actually is appreciated about at the inflation rate. And encouraging people to overinvest in housing actually means that they don't do as good a job of savings because they'd put more money in the stock market they'd have, if, they had, if, they, if they weren't overinvesting in housing because that's at, way outperformed the home mortgage market. I, I got a home and it's fine to have it, but it doesn't make sense. Now, if you want to argue about low-income people getting a house, that's FHA. That's a very different kind of argument. Yeah. We're, for Fred and Fanny, that's not what we're really arguing about. Well, it started in dire need, and then after World War II, it became an entitlement for returning soldiers. Right. So that's, you know, and it never went away. It just got bigger. Right. Mm -hmm. Susan, what, what would the world be like without GSEs? Well, your, uh... so I don't do math, so that was fascinating. <laughs> um, but I am thinking about um, putting this in vernacular. So if we don't have the GSEs, you're saying that all these mortgages would get put together in, I guess, private label securities, right? So banks would portfolio and then, them. And, and then investors would come and buy them, right? Well, you'd still have two GSEs. You still have... You'd have Ginny May and the Federal Home Loan okay. Bank. All right, so I think FHFA tried this experiment to outprice by raising G fees on the Freddie and Fannie a few years ago in an effort to draw in private capital to do this very thing. And yeah. people were still sitting on the sidelines in this... Now, I get it, that we still have Freddie and Fannie in the market, and you could say they're blocking everyone out. But that was the idea of raising G fees, I think, uh, was to stimulate private capital to come in. Um, and so that, and maybe you know why that hasn't taken off. People are still sitting on the sidelines. Yeah. And the thought is, do, is it really possible to say, okay, I know we bailed out Freddie and Fannie, and that we did that, and we said we never would, but we did it, but we're not going to do it ever again. I mean, can you really take off this sense of, in the short run, of government going to step in. No, but look at the difference between the experience at Freddie with multifamily, where they don't even need guarantees because the economics of an apartment building are different, much right. like a commercial property, right? It could be half empty, and they can still pay their bills. Mm -hmm. Whereas going through the individual credit for each mortgage loan for that homeowner right. John was just talking about uh, is a lot of work. Who's going to pay for that? Right. Right, right. So, well, that's one of my questions. Would people really come in if there was no guarantee? Little experiment hasn't worked yet. Um, secondly, would the quality of are we are we we should just say it? Are we going to still have a thirty-year fixed-rate mortgage? Or are we going to have arms and have people bear their own interest rate yeah. risk? 
you would, you would have to go to floating rate. Uh, well, I don't know about that. I don't think you would have a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, and I think a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is a really bad product. Anybody look at the amortization on it? You're 20 years before you pay any principal. I think encouraging people to get 30-year fixed-rate mortgages is in a really bad category. So it might disappear. I know you'd have a 25-year because insurance companies need that, and you probably have a 20-year. Mm. I don't. I actually think this is a non-problem. To say that you couldn't finance mortgages when all the things that are financed in the market, is you, you can argue about what, what the price differential will be, but the price differential will simply reflect economic reality. That's well, the way markets the work. Fix a regulatory issue. I think. Well, you got yeah. You got to be careful with the regulatory side. Uh, another question. Let's see. Uh, yeah, right in the front there. Thank you. Uh, Mike, microphone. My name is Justin Peterson. You pointed out that if if we get rid of the guarantee, we'll have banks lining up. But the banks are asking for a guarantee on MBS, on MBS. and so the Mortgage Bankers Association. So I'm wondering what you think of that proposal. The mortgage bankers aren't really the bankers, right? <laughs> the, the banks are pretty much out of the mortgage business now. Dovetails with the point that Susan was making. She said, "We'll see if capital comes off the sidelines." But in fact, the bankers that are saying they'll come off the sidelines right now, they're saying we want an MBS guarantee. Of course, that's something we've never had. So, is that something you would support? I'm opposed to the guarantee. But are they? Would, would are there many rent seekers? Would automobile companies like to have a special deal for automobile finance? <laughs> of course. <laughs> I mean, would mortgage bankers like to have lower rates on mortgage loans for, with the government? Of course. You know, you, I mean, you can just make the list infinite. Would, any, would everybody like a free ride from the government? It's, the question is whether that makes any sense, and it doesn't make. And the fact that mortgage bankers would like it, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, it, you know, before Freddie and Fannie went uh, broke, um, I was part of a, a, a group at the, at the Financial Services Roundtable trying to do something about Freddie Manning because we knew it was going broke. And, uh, but mo me, most of the banks were actually opposed to it because they were originating mortgages into Freddie and Fannie. And it was, you know, even though it's actually a profit-minimizing strategy for banks long-term because you can make a lot more money portfolio mortgages, but bankers don't think long-term. <laughs> and, and they're like a lot of business people, unfortunately. I mean, a few do. But, but so, so the fact that people want subsidies is meaningless to me. I mean, of course they all want subsidies. Everybody wants a free lunch. I think this, this gets back to one of the first questions that I think I asked before. So, But let's say you, all right, we're not going to get rid of this. Let's say uh, housing prices fall 30%. The private labels go bankrupt. How can we be sure whoever's in office isn't going to come back and basically bail these things out, I think? I don't think you'd need to. I mean, go back to John's comment. $10 trillion in total finance today for residential assets, right? If you went and got rid of Fannie and Freddie, what would happen? You'd have about 2.5 to $3 trillion end up in the FHA market. They're growing awfully fast right now. The rest of the market would be financed by banks or private investors, and that would be the high-quality, qualified mortgage because the banks won't step out of that circle. They've been told not to. And they won't. I mean, and then the top 10% of that market is what you call jumbos, which are, you know, big loans uh, for rich people who have almost no probability of default. And you can sell those either to banks as investments or you sell them to insurance companies, like John was saying. The pricing would change. And the key thing is 
do you keep some minimal backstop so you are still able to have a forward market for interest rates? Because in my conversations with the industry, I said, what would happen if we got rid of Fannie and Freddie? And they said, well, Chris, the coupon on the mortgage wouldn't change, but when we were writing the mortgage before they closed, managing the interest rate risk would be a really big cost unless they were a depository and they had the cash in the house. But if you're a non-bank, you don't have any cash, and that's why they're all in the FHA market. You know, they, they get overpaid when they sell a loan, but when the loan goes bad, they have to find the cash to buy it back. The practical risk in your case, and to, to uh, emphasize on that point, would be if FHA fails. And the, is the government going to bail out FHA? Yeah. And I think they will. <laughs> but they're going to bail out FHA anyway. So, so the actual risk in the rest of the economy, I think, would be to disperse and, and it wouldn't create any kind of systematic problem because actually you'd get concentrated risk in, in FHA, which you already have to, to a large degree anyway, but you'd get more of it. I guess the thing that you would have to think through as policymakers is that in the long run, um, such a system perhaps could be effectuated, but in the meantime, we have two companies that basically have no capital, and to be able to effectuate the long-run system that you advocate, you would definitely go through a period of, I believe, significant market disruption where you would potentially have um, uh, increased softening of home prices again. And what's really interesting today, and my, my political views are very similar to yours. Um, but, but in looking at um, just practical application of how do we get there from here, the transition costs to both the economy and to individual retirees and from, to get from here to there would be substantial. Because most people's individual nest eggs, particularly retirees as they're approaching you know, their mid to late 60s and, and contemplating retirement, is tied up into the house. And if we effectuate change that's going to cause uh, substantial housing price declines during this transitional period, you will create a generation of retirees who will find themselves you know, bagging grocery stores at the local... Oh, stop. <laughs> I, I just, no, 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 I, but I, I just I, don't I, see I the just, transition cost. No, no, I, Markets I, respond in, in no, about I, an hour I, and a half. A, no, but if you take a look, there are a, number of, there are a number of seniors today who lost significant wealth in the marketplace as a result of, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. of the collapse of housing prices. <laughs> I believe I read, in fact, in the paper this morning, it was something like $1.9 trillion of individual personal wealth that was destroyed as a result of the decline in housing prices. Mm -hmm. If you are beginning your retirement or you have children in college or things of that nature, that is a significant disruption to your individual balance sheets. And I'm not suggesting that you're not right, in the super long term, 
I'm just saying in, during this transition period, I don't know how you get, from, get there from here without creating substantive disruption that from a policy standpoint, this country may not be willing to take on at this yeah, point. Yeah, but here's how the regulators have solved your problem. They basically shot half of the home builders in this country, and they told all the banks not to lend on construction and development lending, which has been cut in half <clears throat> since the crisis. And you're right, most homes still haven't recovered in 2008. Uh, it's interesting, the average prices that you see in the newspaper indicate that they have, but no, two-thirds of the homes out there still haven't gotten back. So you're, you're talking about a real issue, but I think that there's such a constraint on home construction right now uh, that I, I can't even imagine a scenario where prices are going to soften in the major metros, in, in the areas that have benefited. Um, but, you know, the rest of the country, Terre Haute and my friends in Indiana, no, they haven't come back yet. They're probably not going right. to. Uh, just time for a, a couple more questions. Right in the, uh, in the middle there. Uh, Robert Shredda, president of International Investor. Um, it, it, very quick comment. Uh, there's a ton of evidence out there that ownership changes behavior over uh, renting or leasing. Anybody who's a landlord knows this, and uh, ask anybody can ask themselves how well they treated the engine and transmission of the last car they rented versus uh, the one they own. But my real question is: there's a couple elephants that that aren't. Uh, that have been missing here, and, and they're often missing from these discussions. The role of the private mortgage market, which also uh, expanded greatly leading up to the crisis, and something that we, you know, the figure of 11 trillion, 10, 11 trillion for the, the mortgage market was mentioned. Well, there happened to be about 45 trillion in CMOs that were written at the height of the crisis. Chris knows this better than anybody. Now, even if you look at the cash market of those, roughly 1%, you're still looking at $450 billion. By the way, that, that's interesting because that figure roughly approached what some of the bailout money was required to uh, salvage some of these institutions. But it was the countrywides and the others that really started to mimic Ginny May and, and Freddie Mac, and they're the ones that uh, really started writing a lot of very bad mortgages into the uh, investable products. Well, yeah, I'll never forget when my friends at Bear started making mortgages. I knew that was bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, w I wanted to comment on the home ownership. It is true that home ownership is correlated with better behavior, but it's not pr true that it's, it's actually been proved that owning a home changes people's behavior. That's, there's a bunch of you can look, there's a bunch of psychological studies. Yes, it's correlated because people have developed better behaviors is how they end up owning a home. That's not causation, correlation. Yeah. Uh, right in the, in the front, um, the woman right there in the... Yeah, go for it. Second row. <laughs> Hi, my name is Tatiana Bodner, and I just wanted to ask, um, so I went to the sentence hearing um, in the banking... Um, committee last week, and it was about community lenders. And community lenders have been consolidating or closing at a steady rate since the 60s or 70s. And um, not, or and bigger banks are buying these up. Um, if the private markets were to take um, the shares in MBS, like the market share, um, do you think that we have to deal with too big to um, too big to fail um, banks concurrently before we tackle this type of issue? Because 
a lot of times what we've seen in 2008 with this like implicit guarantee um, is the government just going to guarantee these banks, these huge investment banks, that we're just going to bail them out just like we did for Fannie and Freddie? I think we need to do both. I speak for myself. We, uh, in fact, <clears throat> Cato's been involved trying to give some intellectual ammunition to the Choice Act, which, <clears throat> which is now passed the House, which basically ends too big to fail. Uh, theoretically, Dodd-Frank ended too big to fail, but nobody believes that if you look at what's happening in the marketplace. This really would end too big to fail, and it would allow community banks to opt out that were strongly capitalized. Since Dodd-Frank was passed, uh, 2,000 community banks have gone away, and only three have been started. Now, before, yes, banks were being merged, but huge numbers were being started because the regulatory cost <clears throat> is so prohibited. Uh, so um, we believe that... that uh, the Choice Act needs to be, you know, I would say regulation precedes, if I have to say Freddie and Fannie, I think that's a big issue. Regulation's a bigger issue, but I think they both need to be done. And you, and you have to get rid of the too big to fail thing. And I think that can be done, but you have to really be willing to let a few institutions fail. But what this law would do would properly capitalize them so the probability of failure would drop exponentially. Yeah. So, let me, I, so I think to your question, uh, this is something Chris and I have talked about before. I think what's, what's going on is a good question is just, just what John said, is you're seeing smaller community banks, it, it, the regulatory burden is making it cost ineffective for them to exist. So um, Chris and I have talked about my hometown bank, the Morton Community Bank, which is a $3 billion community bank, a very big one. And you know, the comment that, that the president has made, Gordon Honegger, is that this is actually, the regulatory regime is really good because it's forced so many really small uh, community banks to give up the ghost and sell out to him. And so <laughs> what, what, you're, what, you're, what you're seeing is uh, the, the small one hometown community bank doesn't, doesn't exist anymore, and it's being driven ex explicitly by uh, the regulatory burden. Uh, yeah, right in the very back there, Thank you. My name is David Margulies. Uh, I'd just like to put Susan Gates on the spot for a second. Um, between the uh, debate between John and Landon, where do you where do you fall? <laughs> and it's got to be zero sum game, one or the other. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! Well, um, I got these. Uh, out, Bill Poole has been writing to me, and uh, he said it's cognitively impossible for a former Freddie Mac employee to be totally lined up with my friend Mr. Allison here, meaning <laughs> to, to wipe them out completely. And and I thought about that, and I I, I tend to think that I am concerned about the interim disruption of it all, and I have my doubts whether we could fully eliminate too, too big to fail. And wouldn't they just ascribe another implicit guarantee to it? And I, I'm, I hearken to these arguments. It's just like car loans, but it, it actually isn't. There's just a little bit more. These long-term mortgages, it costs a lot more to get a house than a car in most places. Um, and it, it is all wrapped up in this ethos of homeownership. And, and that, I take all of Chapter 2 to, to punch holes in that. But nevertheless, that's who we are right now. So... Um, I think that moving to what we're talking about here is uh, a desideratum, but I'm worried in the practical sense of trying to get there. So um, something where uh, I would support, and my 
colleague, uh, Phil Schwegel from AEI, and another um, former Freddie colleague wrote a piece that's on the University of Maryland's webpage on, uh, because the book doesn't really get into this because it was put to bed two years ago at this point. But um, entity, so sharing the risk, there is risk with long-term fixed rate mortgages. I would love to go down to 20 years or 25. That's a good step. But that's not 10 years. Um, should we carry interest rate risks and credit risks for, for most homeowners so they sleep at night and they don't have to be worrying about fix a floating market? That's a policy choice. But generally in our country, we've, we've wanted to have the financial intermediaries shoulder that risk for the, home, the average homeowner. And then, um, uh, but so if that risk is still out there and we should reduce the risk either through shorter term mortgages um, I, I'm a strong believer in down payments and um, um, strengthening home buyers' skin in the game as well. But at that point, I think that the securities uh, should carry the um, uh, uh, <laughs> edge idea of a, of a slice of catastrophic risk insurance because I just don't believe we're going to completely be able to get rid of an implicit guarantee. So what about a much tighter explicit guarantee that is in second, third, uh, loss position, um, more capital up front coming in from the homeowner, coming in from the entities. Uh, Freddie and Fannie, it, this short-term short term idea that their securities merge as already FHFA is working toward a common platform. Other entrants can come in, more risk sharing across the board so no single entity gets as humongous as we once were. And then this catastrophic risk piece is wrapped just around the security. Um, it's it's not, if we all had a piece of blank paper and we'd start over, we'd probably design something like this. I just don't know how you get there without significant disruption um, in a market that has been, um, you know, bred on government backing. Um, and we do want to have a stable system in bumpy times that people can still get mortgages. I presume we still want that. So is that a, a way of trying to, mm, Solomon, like, uh, split the baby here? But I, I'd, I, I remember at Freddie how difficult these arguments, they were so elegant. And I, I have to say, my having come in and being 19 years there, um, all these ideas of wanting to, to tar and feather your employer and tear you to bits, I mean, it, it creates a um, defensive mechanism on the part of employees and probably on the regulator. But I, I have to say, I think there is great um, elegance in these arguments to move in that direction. And that has come to me after nine years of thinking about it. And I, I'd like, I like these ideas. I'm just saying I, I think moving there, especially in a policy way, is, is going to be tough. And so I'm, I'm in the small step category. Great. Uh, so I want to thank uh, our, our panelists. And uh, I just want to give them a last shout out. So for uh, Susan, it's her book, Days of Slaughter. Uh, for Chris, he has a new book coming out. In fact, he is giving a book talk tonight here at Cato hosted by the Prosperity Caucus, uh, the Ford Boys. Uh, Landon, Landon's uh, new publication is The, the Blueprint, uh, talking about how to reform the GSEs. And uh, John Allison has a new album coming out next month. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so I want to thank everybody for coming, and thanks again to Kato for hosting.